Good morning. It's a great, great joy to be with you. Uh, I'm Chad Henley, in case you don't know. Um, but I guess it's my first uh, official Sunday as pastor of Cottondale Baptist Church. And um, and so we're we're really humbled. We're really grateful. Um, I wrote in the the bulletin that we shared a little bit of our our journey this Wednesday. I know I know you guys have had a journey yourselves, and and we had a journey when we graduated seminary, uh, seeking the place that the Lord had for us. The Lord had laid it on our hearts, obviously, knowing we would graduate seminary uh, over a year and a half ago. And so, uh, my family and I have been in prayer for probably over a year and a half, almost every day, praying for the place that the Lord would lead us. And we believe he has led us to that place. And so we are so grateful and so thankful. And so as we begin this morning, why don't we just join our hearts together uh, in prayer and in praise to the Lord and, and ask God for a blessing. Father in heaven, Lord, what a joy it is to gather again today as your people, redeemed, blood-bought, purchased by the Lamb of God. And Lord, you've been so good to us, and you have led us both, Lord, on a journey uh, to each other. And now, Lord, we believe that you have good plans for us. We believe, Lord, that in your kind providence, you have united us as one body and one people to magnify the name of Jesus Christ in this community, in this country, and around the world. And I pray, Lord, that this morning, you would grant us hearts um, that are freshly committed to you, that you would strengthen our convictions, Lord, this morning again. Convictions for your kingdom, for your glory. Convictions to be the people of God, Lord, that you desire us to be. So we surrender our wills to yours and say, lead us, Lord, guide us, make much of Christ through us. Speak to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, this morning is going to be a little different. As I thought about and prayed about what I should speak on this morning, I thought it would be good to talk about what I'm calling Cottondale Commitments. And of course, when I speak of Cottondale Commitments, I'm speaking of simply things that the Scripture calls us as a local church and every local church to be committed to and recommitted to in every generation. And so as we, as we look forward um, to the future, even as we anticipate the, the, the celebration of the coming of our Lord next Sunday and the new year coming up very soon, I want us to think about 
what the Lord wants us to be committed to, to be focused on as we step forward into the coming days. So I'm going to talk about five commitments, five commitments this morning. And the first commitment is commitment to Christ, commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to be in several passages. Um, you can turn there if you, if you wish. You could read off the screen. But the first commitment that we have as a church as the people of God and as Cottondale Baptist Church, is a commitment to Christ. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. That Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead and he was ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Jesus, when he gave his disciples the great commission, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. He is the Lord of everything in general and he is the Lord of all of Cottondale Baptist Church in particular. And, you know, when we speak of church, we'll, we'll say things like, that's my church, you know, or, or this is our church. And that's true, you know. When we say Cottondale Baptist Church is my church, that is true. It is our church. But long before it was your church, long before it was my church, it was Jesus' church. We didn't die and rise from the dead for this church. Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead for this church. Therefore, our first commitment as a local body of saints in the Lord is to Jesus Christ and to his kingship. The text says that Jesus is our head, which means, of course, that Jesus gets to call the shots in this church. Not You are not the pastor, even. Jesus calls the shots in this church. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the king. And at times, what that will mean, and I don't presume to know what those things might be right now, but we know that at times, following the lead of our head will take us at times to uncomfortable places. And so I speak of our commitment to Christ, first of all, because he is... (laughs) the center of all things. But because, of course, we must be willing to, as his people, to be willing to embrace his leadership wherever it calls us to go. 
even if it calls us to uncomfortable places. That is, we as the people of God must together bow our knees and our hearts to King Jesus and look to him and look to Jesus and say, Lord, in this church and in my life, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And that's what me, we must be willing to do. We are, as the Apostle Paul says, the body of Christ. Christ is our head and we are the body. Now think about it. When your head tells your arm to move, your arm hopefully does not argue with the head, right? It just obeys, right? The, the, the body is surrendered at every point to the will of the head. If the member of the body does not obey the will of the head, something's wrong, It's broken, or it's hurt, or it's wounded, or it's lame, or it's diseased, or something's wrong. And it is my prayer, and I know our prayer to God, that Cottondale Baptist Church would never give any resistance to our head. That when he wants to wield us for him and for his glory, we would just just do it like, like like our body obeys our will. That we would give no resistance to our head. There is, there is uh, that kind of surrender to the will of Jesus is several things. One, first, it's frightening. And secondly, it's liberating. Because we know that we can do nothing of eternal importance. But as the embodiment of Christ in this world, there's nothing we can't do for Christ and his kingdom. When we obey and surrender our will to the Lord Jesus Christ. So our first commitment is a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, our second commitment is a commitment to Scripture. Commitment to Scripture. We see this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14. In following a very famous passage. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul says that the scripture, uh, in Greek it's theopneustos, literally, breathed out by God. That is that we believe that the 66 books of the Bible and the original manuscripts were superintended by God in his sovereignty and providence through human agency in such a way that every word that was recorded in this book is 100% inerrant, infallible, the word of God. That's what we believe about this Bible. It was written by men, of course, but it was written by men, the Bible says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, using their personalities and their styles in such a way that they recorded for us exactly what God 
wanted us to have and wanted us to know. And because this book is a divine work, it is the final authority on every matter to which it speaks. When the Bible says something, that's the end of the conversation. It is the final authority to every matter to which it speaks. We as Southern Baptists, and this church in particular, adheres to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And the very first article in the Baptist Faith and Message, Article 1, is our beliefs concerning the Scriptures. That's intentional because the Scripture is our foundation and it's from which we draw every other doctrine and belief. And this is what the Baptist Faith and Message says about the Scripture. It says, The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. So we as the people of God are committed to the scriptures Because the scripture is divine revelation, and because Christ was submitted to the scriptures. Christ said, Christ said, not a jittle, not a jot or tittle of the the scripture will pass away until all is fulfilled. Jesus and the scripture, we affirm, is is about Jesus, and it is our final authority about the life and teachings of Jesus. And really, we have to have the scriptures in order to fulfill our first commitment to Christ. Because if we want to know the mind of Christ, we have to know the scriptures. If you want to know Jesus, read this book. And the important thing that must happen when we approach this scripture, both in our individual lives as Christians and as collectively as a church, is that we have to approach this book with humility. What do I mean by that? A lot could be said, but the West and Western thought, and thought in America and in Europe, in Western Europe, has been largely influenced by a movement called the Enlightenment. You don't have to know all that. But the point is, is that part of that philosophical worldview greatly exalted human reason, and and science is part of that. But it basically said that if... That human reason is ultimate. That if, if it, everything falls under the scrutiny of our individual intellects and our individual minds, and if it can't satisfy us, then we shouldn't believe it. Of course, the problem with that is that the Bible says our intellects are fallen. The Bible says that the, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. In other words, and another principle that we know is true, is that think about this. If it's easy to not believe something that is true if you don't want to believe it. In other words, it's very easy to convince yourself something is false when it actually is true 
just simply because you don't want to believe it. Because if, if that particular thing is true, you don't want to have to deal with the implications of it. For example, many people simply believe, don't want to think about God and don't want to think about the Bible and don't want to think about the Scripture in general simply because they know that if they think about it and if they come to the conclusion that Jesus is, is God and that the Scripture is true, they'll, their life will have to change. And they're not willing to go there. So the scripture says our reason is fallen. Our thinking is fallen. Nevertheless, many people come to the scriptures with this, with this mindset that basically says, you know, if, if I don't like what it says at certain points, then I can just cut that out. You know, that's what Thomas Jefferson did. Thomas Jefferson took a pair of scissors to his Bible and cut out every part that he didn't like. And that's what a lot of people do today. But think about this. If the Bible is true, and if, the, and if it's true that all of us by nature have sinful hearts that, ha- that produce in us desires that are contrary to the will of God, then we shouldn't be surprised when we come to this book and it steps on our toes. <laughs> you should never be surprised when, the, when, the, when, when God gives you a wake-up call. When the Bible steps on your toes. That's not, that's not evidence of its falsehood. That's evidence of its truth. If, if your God or if your view of religion agrees with everything that you think, you're your God. If your religion, if your scriptures never challenge your worldview, then you're your God and you're your own scripture. Of course the Bible is going to contradict us. Of course the Bible is going to correct us. Of course the Bible is going to rebuke us. Of course the Bible is going to tell us some things that we don't like. The key then, and this is worked by the Holy Spirit of God in our hearts, the key then is the ability to come to the scriptures and say, and say, Lord, I want your word to master me and not me master your word. See, we don't come to the we don't we don't come to the scripture presuming to be Lord over it. We come to the scriptures and say, Lord, teach me. Lord, show me. Lord, show me where I'm wrong. Lord, correct me. We must be willing to come to this book and say, Lord, I don't understand that. And that's hard. But if you say it, I'm going to believe it. You see, part of the Christian faith, I'm not talking about blind faith here. I'm not talking about just taking, just taking, you know, like a step in the dark. That's not what this is. The Bible is the word of God, and our relationship and our relationship to this book is through a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So it's not like taking a leap in the dark. It's like having a, a loving father who is much smarter than you tell you over and over, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and you finally say, okay, I trust you. It's not a leap in the dark. It's a, it's a step of trust in a person who you know is smarter than you are. That's not dumb. That's just smart. That's just wise. And that's what we do when we approach this book. Is we bow our heads and our hearts and say, Lord, teach me. Even if it's hard to believe and hard to understand. What does this mean? Also, it means that we as a church must be committed to making this book a part of our everyday lives. It is not enough. Jesus is not an add-on to our life. 
It is not something that we say, I need to get a little more church in my life, so I'm going to be okay. No, no, no. Jesus, Jesus and the scriptures are the sun in the center of your solar system that holds the rest of your life in orbit. He's the only thing massive enough such that he has enough gravity to hold the rest of your, li- your life in orbit. He is the center. He is the sun. He is not an add-on or an addition. And this Bible, the word says, is sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. It's more precious than jewels. Oh, that God would let us see that. If we saw it, it, wouldn't be, it would, we wouldn't leave it on our shelf. If we tasted it, we would get it out the pantry. You wouldn't be able to get enough. Because that's what it is. Let us see it. Let us devote ourselves to it every day and submit ourselves to this book. It's food for our souls. It takes hard work to read and study and understand this book. It's the most read book in human history, the most influential book that's ever existed and ever been written. Why is that? Because it's true. We must be devoted to this book. So we are committed to Christ. We are committed to the scripture. Number three, we are committed to church membership. We are committed to church membership. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 12 and 13, Paul writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Does the Bible teach church membership? Of course. Jesus Christ is our head and we are his members. We are his members. The, church, the Bible teaches church membership. That the church is a body, the head is Christ, and we are the hands. We are the feet. We are the arms and the legs, the eyes, the ears, the nose of Jesus Christ. We all have different gifts and talents and abilities. Your hands can do things your eyes can't do. Your feet can do things your hands can't do. But if you ever have just any one part that's not working right, it messes everything else up, doesn't it? It messes everything else up. So when the Bible speaks of church membership, that's the kind of membership that it's talking about. Incredible, inseparable unity, even though different parts are so interconnected, interdependent, on one another, such that if one part isn't working properly, they all suffer. And if one part rejoices, Paul says, all rejoice. That's what church membership is. The problem, of course, is when we speak of membership today, when we think of membership, the first thing we think of is club membership. The church, my friends, is not a country club. The church is not a place where you pay your dues and sit back and relax and enjoy having all your preferences met. That's, that's, that's church membership. That's Sam's Club membership. I like Sam's, all right? But nothing's wrong with Sam's, but that's not church membership. We are interdependent members looking, all looking at the same time to our head, to Christ. In other words, there's no such thing as a solo Christian. It's true. The Bible's very clear on this. And there's a lot of confusion because some people think, well, I can, I can be a Christian without the church. Where is that in the Bible? Please show me that. 
You know how many commands there are to love one another, to bear one another's burden, to care for one another, to encourage one another? How can you do that by yourself? How can you obey these commands of Jesus Christ by yourself? You can't. Have you ever seen a, have you ever seen a, a hand that's cut off and it's crawling along the street by itself? You would be. That was a scary, actually, that was a horror movie. It was, really, it was a real horror movie. Something's not right. Well, that, if, you tried to, if, you, if you were transported back to the early church after the day of Pentecost when they were, when they were uh, living and sharing life together right there in the city of Jerusalem, and you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I'm not interested in all this stuff, you guys. I'm just going to kind of be chilling over here. They're going to be, they, they would say, what? They, they literally, they would not even have a category for it to even think in those terms. They would say, what are you even saying? What are you trying... It, it, would, it wouldn't even make sense. There is no category for a Christian that is not vitally connected to a local body of believers. In 1 John, he writes, if, if, you, if, you don't, if you don't love the brothers, you don't love Christ. If, if, the, if the sun in the center of the solar system of your life has been changed to Jesus Christ, you are inevitably drawn to people who have that same center. And if you've ever traveled much and you're talking to someone, but then you find out that person's a believer, man, it changes everything. Because all of a sudden you have this eternal connection in your souls. There really is something powerful, something true. We need each other to help and encourage and support one another. Not only that, the Bible says, we need each other. In Hebrews, the author says, let no one see to it, it's a command, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And the holiness, he says, without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, part of Christian community is, to, is when we go astray, we have people to come get us and bring us back into the fold. See, lots of people don't understand that. When... <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a joke, but you know, so, and you don't, you don't want to beat up people, but lots of people, when you, when you go to them and they've missed church, you kind of say, well, they're, they're, in the back of their minds, are kind of like, why are you judging me? Why are you judging me? Well, did you know what the Bible says? Paul says, don't you know it's, it's not outsides, but those inside we're supposed to judge? In other words, Paul's saying, if you don't want to be part of a community where, we're, where we care about your soul and your holiness... Then, no, then you're not a Christian. But if you care about your soul and your eternity, then of course you want, if I go astray, I want somebody to run to me and say, Chad, what are you doing, you fool? Stop it. What are you going to destroy yourself? Stop it. I want somebody to tell me that. I want somebody to love me enough, to care enough, to come to me and say, what's wrong with you? Don't you care about your soul? That's what Christian community is. It's a place where, yes, we can be corrected, where, yes, we can be held accountable. James says, my brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Church membership is a glorious thing. And church membership is a privilege. It's not a right. It's a privilege. 
it's not a right. This, this church, uh, this body of believers has a church covenant. I think it's incredible. It's very, it's, um, not many churches, new churches being started have church covenants anymore, but it was very common in the past. And the reason why it was so common is because people understood that when you became a member of a church, you were, in a very real sense, making a covenant with the other members of that church, saying, I'm going to fulfill these responsibilities towards you, and you're going to fulfill these responsibilities towards me because we're covenanting together, and in a real sense, we are becoming a family. I I have the church covenant up here. Um, It's rather long, but I'd actually like if we could all read it together. So, because this is the commitment we're making as fellow believers in Christ, so um, just follow, follow along with me. Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we do now, in the presence of God and this assembly, most solemnly and joyfully Enter into covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and comfort, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship ordinances, discipline, and doctrines to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the ministry, the expenses of the church, and the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel throughout all nations. We also engage to maintain family and secret devotion, to educate our children religiously, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful to our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment, to avoid all tattling, backbiting, and excessive anger, to abstain from the sale of and use of intoxicating drinks and illegal drugs, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember one another in prayer, to aid one another in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and Christian courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. We moreover engage that when we remove from this place, we will, soon as possible, unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. What a commitment. My goodness, did you, you just read that. 
Did you, that's, what a commitment that we are making to one another before God. Church membership is a privilege. It's not a right. And it's a holy covenant that we make with one another. And when we say that we're members of Cottondale Baptist Church, we are saying that we are members one of another and that we will uphold the covenant that we have made. And as we hold true to our covenant, I believe the Lord will bless us. That he will bless us. So we have commitment to Christ, commitment to scripture, commitment to church membership. Number four, commitment to discipleship. Commitment to discipleship. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The fourth commitment that we have is the commitment to discipleship. Jesus said to make disciples of all nations, and that meant baptizing and teaching in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So discipleship includes baptism, but also evangelism, and it also includes helping people grow and mature in their faith and in their walk with the Lord. And that's what we often mean when we use the term discipleship. And what we learn from Deuteronomy chapter 6, that discipleship is lots of things, but, and, but importantly, I want to highlight that it's not just a program, but it's a lifestyle. When you read this text in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is saying, Moses is saying, Our relationship with God is something that totally consumes our whole life. That is, every decision that we make is under the Lordship of Christ. That means that that discipleship then involves being intimately connected with other people's lives in such a way that they see how, in every area of your life, how Jesus Christ is Lord over that area of your life. So in other words... In other words, discipleship is not just taking your kids and grandkids to church every Sunday, although that's important. It's very important. But discipleship is what you do six, the other six days of the week. When you show them whether what you say you believe on Sunday really makes a difference in your life the rest of the week. That's discipleship. Where we, where we show them that Jesus Christ is really our treasure... In the decisions that we make, where we go, where we don't go, what we watch, what we won't watch, what we will buy, what we won't buy, how we, what we will say, what we won't say. That's what discipleship is. And it's important that we, as a body of believers, are committed to investing in others and the next generation for the sake of Christ. We've got to understand that our actions always reverberate far wider than we ever anticipate. You know, we have three small boys, and you want to find out how you talk, well, listen how your children talk. They repeat every word you say. That's discipleship. 
We must be intentional. We must be intentional about these things. It won't happen by accident. We have to think about how we can shape the minds of other people. So in our Sunday school classes, that's discipleship. When, we're, when you're praying at bed at night with your spouse or with your, or with your family, that's discipleship. Everything you do is discipleship. And so we as a church must be committed to investing in others and, and investing in our families and investing in our coworkers and whatever it is to show them that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there's one specific instance of this that I want to look at and that I want to share with you this morning. And that is the importance of godly men in the church. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul instructs Timothy... What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So think about what Paul is saying. First of all, the Bible is quite clear that, that God in his wisdom has given us a, the leadership authority in the home and in the church to men. And he's telling Timothy, he's instructing him, you need to invest in faithful men. Why? Why? So that then they will be able to teach others also. In other words, Paul is not just, he doesn't just want addition to the church. He wants multiplication to the church. He's not going around just sharing the gospel individually with people. He's investing in other people and saying, okay, now you go invest in others. And then when that happens, you don't have addition, you have multiplication. And the key, and he says, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. If you read the, the, the letters of First and Second Timothy, Paul talks about the, the stewardship, the, the good deposit, as it's called, that he's been entrusted with, which is the gospel. And that's something that we must protect. And not only must we protect the gospel, the truth of the gospel, but it's something that we must pass on to the next generation. And so God has appointed that, that men take the lead in the church and in the home. And I think if you look, a lot of problems in our society can be drawn back to the failure of men to lead their home well. There's all kinds of statistics on that that you know we don't have to talk about right now, but when the, when the man is willing to step up and say, I'll stand for Christ in this home. I'll stand for Christ in my community. I'll stand for Christ in my workplace. It makes an incredible impact on those around them. It makes an incredible impact on those around him. You remember in the Garden of Eden, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, who did Satan come to? He went to the woman. And do you remember what it says? It's very subtle. It says, Eve took the fruit and ate it. And then it says, and she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. What was Adam doing? Who did God, who did God tell not to eat the fruit? Adam. What was Adam doing? He was standing there. While his wife was being deceived, and he did nothing. He did nothing. 
we have a high calling, and it's my desire to, to, to see to it that every man in this church be the most godly, qualified man that you can be. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gives the qualifications for pastor, elder, overseer of the church. And of course, these are the qualifications for that office, but of course, it's implied that every man should be elder quality man. Every man should be pastor quality man. Every man should every man in this church should be able to stand behind this pulpit. You might not have the calling, but you should have the qualities. The holiness, the integrity, the knowledge of scripture, the faith, the love, the obedience, the humility. And so let us be committed to that. And I, and, and as a pastor, I'm going to uh, do my best to ensure that we have, that all of us are the men that God desires us to be. So we have commitment to Christ, commitment to Scripture, to church membership, to discipleship. Finally, the commitment to mission. The commitment to mission. Acts 1.8. Preached on this a couple weeks ago. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We must, in view of everything else, our final commitment is the commitment to mission. We have been given the light of the world. And now we have to take it to the world to let it shine. Jesus gives us the examples of local, regional, and foreign missions. And there's several ways that I just brief, real briefly want to talk about. In local mission, we do a lot in this community. I, and we just need to ask ourselves in fresh ways, what can we do to display Christ in this community? What can we do to, especially the community right around this church, what can we do to show them that Christ is king here, that he is our greatest treasure? And regionally, in North American mission, we as Southern Baptists are really blessed because we have entities in place that really help us here. We have NAM, which is the North American Mission Board. So one of the easiest ways that we can be a part of regional missions is give, just like we're giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, we give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. And not only that, but I would really like to see us as a church, and maybe, and maybe we do already, I'm not sure, but to get intimately involved with a couple, one or two church planters somewhere in the United States. I know some. And develop a long-term relationship with a church planter and basically say, we want, to, we want to do anything we can as a church to help you succeed so that the gospel can go forth through you. We can be a part of that. We can be, there, there are planters that need help, that need support, that need people to come and help them. And I think that would be a, a, a great way that we as a church can support what God is doing in North America. And then, of course, finally, foreign missions. We have the IMB, the International Mission Board. Right now, we're, we're given to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Just let me encourage you as you pray. Pray and ask God what he would have you to give. Not what you want to give. Not what you think you should give. Not what even you think is feasible to give. I'm asking you to pray for what God would want you to give. And will you trust him? with it. 
And I, and I would like, I know we're involved with some missionaries, I would like for us to develop long-term partnerships with some missionaries overseas, you know, where we can really be a part of their ministry, of their service, where we could go over there and help and serve with them. You know, if you're 50 years old, you can still get on a plane and go overseas, right? You can. You can. You don't think you can, but you can. We can go over there and be there. You know, sometimes it can be tempting to say, well, we can just give, you know, why spend all that money to go over there? Let me tell you something. God could have just sat up in heaven and said, I don't have to go down there. I could just, I don't know, I could just, I could just sit and send some rain or something. They'll be just fine. But Jesus, God sent his own son and he went, God came. And let me tell you. There's just something. I don't know how to describe it, but if you've ever been on a, on a foreign mission trip, there, when you see other believers in a faraway land, even though you spent a lot of money and you could, have, you could have, yeah, given them a lot of money or whatever instead of going on that trip, but let me tell you something. When they see your face and, they, and, they, and, and in their hearts they say, they, they, from, they came all the way over here to see me. That makes a difference. It says something to them that you would come and so I pray that the Lord would give us some good partnerships where we can partner and really invest in a particular place long term. You know, we know there's, you know, if you're a Christian, you know there's no such thing as retirement. You never take off the armor of God in the battle. You don't take off your armor in the middle of a battle. You don't sit down. You keep fighting till God says hey, your battle's over. And so, this morning, I want us to recommit ourselves to Christ, to the scripture, to church membership, to discipleship, and to mission. Why would we make all these commitments? Because Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross, he showed how committed he was to us. Utter, unspeakable commitment, indescribable commitment. To his people. And because of that, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Because he's given himself to us, let us give ourselves to him. Just a moment, we're going to sing a song of commitment. If you've never committed yourself, the first greatest commitment of your life to Christ, today can be the day. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, there's none like you. Lord, we don't presume to be able to muster up some kind of commitment to you in and of ourselves. We know that we can't do that. Rather, Lord, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us, you would help us see you, Lord, so high and lifted up that we would just be indestructibly drawn to you in commitment and conviction. Pray that this morning you would stir our hearts in a fresh way for you, for the scripture, for discipleship, church membership, mission, that you would strengthen our hearts knowing that if you're at work, Lord, that apart from you, we can do nothing, but if you're at work, who can stand against it? So strengthen our hearts, Lord, 
as we look and recommit ourselves to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.